Daniel 12 verse 1 quoted above is too obscure to justify its being used as a basis for a doctrine. It speaks of a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, and says that at that time thy people shall be delivered. This verse has received various interpretations. The willful king who was spoken of in chapter 11 verse 36 and who evidently figures in these experiences has been designated by some as Antiochus Epiphanes, by others as Herod the Great, or as the Pope or the Papacy, and as a future Antichrist. There is at least no proof that a time of this kind is wholly future. The reference to thy people, as seen from the Old Testament viewpoint, can be regarded as referring exclusively to Israel, although the New Testament often gives a larger meaning and scope to Old Testament prophecies which at first appearance seemed to be restricted to Israel, as witnessed the expansion of the seed of Abraham to include all true believers in Christ, Galatians 3, verses 7 and 29. And in this immediate context in Daniel 12, verse 2, the resurrection and the fullness of the new life in heaven is prefigured in the statement that many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, also quoted above, is cited by pre-tribulationists as a proof text on the assumption that at this time the church will have been raptured and will therefore not be on the earth during the tribulation. But if the elect referred to in the next verse, for whose sake these days shall be shortened, are the church saints who are still on earth, as seems to be the clear meaning of the words, then this passage becomes one of the clearest of all proofs that the church saints do pass through the tribulation. It is hard to see how the elect can refer to any others. It, it is expressly for their sake that those days will be shortened. Mark chapter 13 verse 19 describes the same event as does Matthew 24:21, and so does not need further discussion. We may cite further Revelation 7:14, which reads, These are they that come out of the great tribulation, and they washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This group, which is described in verses 9-17, through 17, clearly represents those who have departed, the blessed dead, the church triumphant. For in verse 15 it is said, Therefore are they before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. This group, therefore, is seen in heaven, not on earth. Concerning the great tribulation through which they have passed, Dr. Alice says, Dispensationalists tell us that this great tribulation is a holy future period, a brief period of only three and a half years, but one of intense trial. But the New Testament represents tribulation as the lot of all true Christians. Since it is quite clear that the word rendered great can be understood extensively as well as intensively, it is quite as arbitrary to insist that it must have reference to a period which is almost negligible in extent and which is entirely future when we think of the terrible and extended persecutions which the church has already been through, as it is to insist that this must be the meaning of Jeremiah 30 verse 7. If it is to be the lot of Christians generally that through many tribulations they are to enter into the kingdom, it is quite appropriate to refer to this entire period as the Great Tribulation. And such an interpretation is favored by the language used to describe those 
who shall have passed through it. To restrict language which is perfectly applicable to believers, at least to many believers of all ages, to a special group living in a restricted period, is arbitrary. To say that the redeemed, or at least the martyrs of nearly two millenniums, the church saints, are not included among them, seems so improbable that it would require to justify it far more conclusive evidence than any which pre-tribulationists have been able to produce. The vision seems clearly to describe the heavenly felicity of all the redeemed of every age and of every race. A quote from the Prophecy and the Church, page 215. The Church to go through the tribulation. All classes of premillennialists agree that there is to be a period of great tribulation at the end of the present age. The question on which they divide is, will the church go through the tribulation? Historic premillennialists hold that the church does go through the tribulation, while dispensationalists hold that it is raptured at the beginning of that period. Both agree that the world is growing progressively worse and that this process is to be climaxed during the tribulation by a seven-year reign of a personal antichrist. Those who hold the historic premillennialism point out that the church has suffered tribulation throughout the ages, and that it will continue to suffer until the coming of Christ, and that on principle there is no reason why the last generation of Christians should be spared what all previous generations have endured. The question really comes down to this. Is the tribulation the wrath of man, or is it the wrath of God? Historic premillennialists say that the Antichrist is a man, and that the church has no promise of deliverance from the wrath of man, but only a promise of grace to endure it. Dispensationalists hold, on the other hand, that the tribulation is the wrath of God, poured out upon an apostate world, and that since there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Romans 8 verse 1, and since those who believe on Christ do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life, John 5:24, the true church is taken out of the world before the woes begin. They say that Christ comes for his saints at the beginning of the tribulation, that all believers therefore are caught up and taken away, and that only unbelievers are left to go through the tribulation. What a fearful prospect it is, they say, if the church is to be in this tribulation, as all the woes described in Revelation chapters 4 through 19 are poured out upon the earth. How can we suppose it possible, they ask, that God would permit any part of this terrible suffering to fall on his redeemed and believing people? Is it not more fitting, more in accord with his dealings in grace toward men, that they should be removed to be with him before this trouble sets in. But where, we may ask, is there scripture to support that view? Sufferings and trials are no strange lot for the people of God. They are, in fact, specifically set forth in scripture as the disciplinary means in this world through which faith and patience are developed. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye may have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, said Jesus to his disciples. John 16.33 At Lystra, Paul, the greatest of the Lord's servants, was stoned and dragged out of the city for dead. But on regaining consciousness, he went back into the same city and continued his work, making many disciples, confirming the souls of the disciples, 
exhorting them to continue in the faith and that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says, My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art reproved of him. For whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It is for chastening that ye endure. God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father chasteneth not? But if ye are without chastening, whereof all have been made partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we had the fathers of our flesh to chasten us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed good to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. All chastening seemeth for the moment to be not joyous, but grievous. But afterward it yieldeth peaceable fruit unto them that have been exercised thereby, even the fruit of righteousness. Chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 Christians are repeatedly warned that in this world theirs is not to be a life of luxury and ease, but rather one of trials and suffering. Paul wrote of the afflictions that Christians are to suffer before the coming of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 Peter wrote of the fiery trials which Christians undergo. 1 Peter 4 verse 12 And John wrote of the tribulation which he shared with others. Revelation 1 verse 9 and of tribulation in the church of Smyrna. Revelation 2 verses 9 and 10 It is to be remembered that for the Christian this tribulation is not punishment, but chastening, designed for his advancement and growth in grace. In proportion as the church is zealous in proclaiming the gospel, she is sure to suffer persecution at the hands of those who reject it. There is nothing in scripture to indicate that the Christian, who through many tribulations is to enter into the kingdom of God, will be exempt from such suffering. Dispensationalists divide the tribulation into two parts. The entire period is said to be of seven years' duration, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. During the first part of this period, the Jews return to Palestine, make a covenant with the Antichrist, rebuild the temple, reinstitute the sacrifices and rituals, and carry on a worldwide campaign of evangelism which results in the conversion of great numbers of people. In the middle of the week, Antichrist breaks the covenant, reveals his true character as the man of sin, abolishes the sacrifice, sets up his own image in the temple, and demands worship. This the Jews refuse to give him. Terrible persecutions then break out against the Jews. Revelation 13 verses 14 and 15 the tribulation proper thus occurs primarily during only the last three and one-half years of this period. A place of refuge for the Jews is found in the wilderness country beyond the Jordan, in Edom, Moab, and Ammon. William E. Blackstone, author of Jesus is Coming, believed this so strongly that he had cases of Bibles hidden away in the caves of those regions so that the Jews might find them in the time of their distress. This, they say, is the time of Jacob's trouble, referred to in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. During this time, all of the woes foretold in Revelation chapters 4 through 19 are fulfilled. 
The Great Tribulation affects also, of course, all existing Gentile nations and the apostate church. Schofield refers to the Great Tribulation as a final catastrophe of civilization. Everything poured into one awful maelstrom of destruction and suffering, the Great Tribulation. A quote from the article reprinted in Bibliotheca Sacra, October-December issue 1951, page 486. Dr. John Walvard, president of Dallas Theological Seminary, says concerning the tribulation that the book of Revelation describes it as an outpouring of the wrath of God upon an unbelieving world. Revelation 6, verse 17, a time when apostasy and sin reach unprecedented blasphemy. It is a period which brings death to most of the world's population and destruction to civilization. Nothing like it has ever happened before. A quote from article in Christian Life, February 1955. Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer refers to it as a Protestant purgatory. No one saved by Christ will be left behind for a supposed Protestant purgatory. A quote from Bibliotheca Sacra, January-March issue, 1952. At the end of the seven-year period, Christ returns with his saints defeats and destroys the Antichrist and his armies in the Battle of Armageddon, thus ending the times of the Gentiles, and sets up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem over which he rules personally for 1,000 years. If it be asked, where in Scripture is there authority for a seven-year period such as dispensationalism sets forth as elapsing between the rapture and the revelation, the answer must be, there is none. It is a period of time imported by inference from Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, it being assumed that each of these weeks is a period of seven years, and being further assumed that the 70th week has not yet been fulfilled. According to this theory, prophetic time ceased to run when the Jews rejected Christ as their king at his first advent, and will not be counted again until he returns in the rapture. Since dispensationalists hold the any-moment theory of the rapture and yet must provide time for a number of predicted events which they say are to occur before the appearing of Christ, such as the apostasy, the appearance and reign of the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, the return of the Jews to Palestine and their conversion, they find the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy a very convenient parenthesis of seven years during which these events are to occur. They then divide the coming of Christ into two parts, the unseen coming at the beginning of this period for his saints and his visible and public coming at the end of this period with his saints. According to this view, the events predicted in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 19, have not yet been fulfilled and will not begin to have their fulfillment until the rapture, but then will be rushed through in jig time and fulfilled during the seven-year tribulation and largely during the last three and one-half years in a veritable phantasmagoria of horrors. The correct interpretation of Daniel's prophecy is, we believe, that the events of the 70th week were fulfilled during the public ministry of Christ in Palestine, including the completion and abolition of the Old Covenant. After a further period of grace, some 37 years later, the final breakup of the Jewish economy came with the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, 
and the final dispersion of the Jewish people. It is interesting to notice that Dr. Schofield thought the First World War would result in the emergence of the Ten Kingdoms in the region of the Old Roman Empire, allegedly foretold in Daniel, and that the Antichrist and Armageddon soon would follow. Speaking before the annual Philadelphia Prophetic Bible Conference in 1914, shortly after the outbreak of the war, he said concerning the Ten Kingdoms, Very likely that may be the arrangement in which there will come a pause in the world war now going on. Certainly at no distant period those who are at war now will come to a condition of exhaustion. If there comes a cessation and a readjustment of some sort in that ancient battle land, the Roman Empire, this is the form in which it will settle down for the moment. And then there will arise Daniel's little horn, a man of base birth but of mighty genius, a greater Napoleon. He overcomes three of these ten kingdoms and becomes the federal head of all of them, a world emperor for a moment. He continues, Now while the earth is in that condition and the beast, the little horn of David, the abomination of desolation, the man of sin, the beast of the sea is grasping and holding this power. The great tribulation is running its course. In the meantime, a comparatively large number of Jews have been permitted, encouraged even, to return to Jerusalem and set up again their temple worship as best they can. If it be objected that all this takes a long time, let it be remembered that right on the site of the Temple of Solomon there is now a building, the Mosque of Omar, that in its divisions, in its structural arrangement could be turned in probably one week into a very fair temporary temple for the restoration of the Jewish worship. Imagine that if you can, the most holy God of heaven and earth, who in Old Testament times was so extremely particular that no element of paganism should enter the temple worship, now accepting the full ritual of worship in a pagan temple. Schofield thought further that during the tribulation period the armies of the ten nations would come against the believing Jewish remnant in Jerusalem. Of which, he said, Scripture has so much to say, it is very plain here in the prophetic word. End of quote. He spoke with much assurance and went into considerable detail describing the events that were to occur just before the battle of Armageddon and the revelation of Christ. He goes on to say, the word is plain enough if you will just let it say what it means and believe that it does say what it means. Quoted from the Bibliotheca Sacra, January-March issue, 1952. We would add that the word may be plain enough, but that it certainly did not mean what Dr. Schofield thought it meant, as has been proved by the course of events since that time. We can point to scores of such interpretations given by premillennialists with great confidence during both the First and Second World War, yet they still assure us that the world is now in its last stages, that the signs indicate that the end is near. The Holy Spirit to be absent during the Tribulation It is standard premillennial doctrine that as the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, at which time the church was especially equipped for its work of world evangelism. So at the rapture, with the departure of the church, the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the world. This is usually explained to me not that the Holy Spirit is withdrawn altogether, but that he is present only in a very limited way, as he was before Pentecost. 
he dwells in the church, and when the church is removed, he too is removed. Says Dr. Walford, The church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is removed from the earth. Then the man of sin is revealed. With his appearance, the tribulation begins. While the Holy Spirit continues to be omnipotent, his work will be similar to the period before Pentecost, but with his restraint withheld. In an article called Christian Life, February 1955, And the period before Pentecost, we remember, was a period in which all the nations of the world, except Israel, were under the reign of heathenism. Another of the strange doctrines of dispensationalism is that despite the fact that the Holy Spirit is to be absent during the tribulation, a Jewish remnant, some say the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7, turns to God and is sealed and then goes through the world preaching the gospel of the kingdom minus the cross. These are Jews who are looking for the Messiah, but who have only a partial understanding of the gospel, and who therefore cannot be regarded as Christians in the proper sense of the word. Strange as it may seem, however, their work proves far more effective than anything that the church has been able to accomplish in all the 19 centuries of its existence. This great success is achieved without the special regenerating and enlightening power of the Holy Spirit, as that power was manifested in the hearts of believers at Pentecost and afterward. Dr. David L. Cooper, president of the Biblical Research Society, says, The greatest revival of all the ages will occur in the tribulation, after the church has been removed from the earth by the rapture from a pamphlet called God's Torchbearers, page 34. The Jews, so this theory holds, are to be converted at the mere sight of Christ their Messiah on the Mount of Olives, and through their testimony whole nations are to be converted. We must point out, however, that people were not converted at the mere sight of Jesus at the first time of his advent, and that it is the particular work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the soul and give it new vision, and so enable it to turn to Christ. The mere presence of Christ often had the effect of hardening his enemies rather than converting them. There is manifested here on the part of dispensationalism a lack of understanding of the process of redemption. For in the system of redemption set forth in the scriptures, Christ's work is not to convert people, but to provide an objective atonement so that there shall be a basis on which the Holy Spirit can bring souls to faith and repentance, and therefore a gospel to preach. Man is not merely sick, but dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1 And before he can believe and turn to God, he must be regenerated, or as the scripture expresses it, born anew or from above. John 3 verse 3 And that is the particular work of the Holy Spirit. Hence, it is simply preposterous to believe that during the tribulation, unchristian or anti-Christian Jews, without the Pentecostal presence and power of the Holy Spirit, can accomplish the evangelization of the world after the church has been removed, or, as the Scofield Bible puts it, after the Holy Spirit in the church is taken out of the way. A quote from page 1272. What a fearful blow that is to the cross and at the church which is founded upon it. It is simply unthinkable that the salvation of the world can be accomplished without the aid of the Holy Spirit. 
So important is his presence and his work that Christ said, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. John 16, verse 7 Dispensationalism thus sets forth, among other things, the doctrine of a second chance or second opportunity for salvation in a later dispensation on the part of those who are living at the time of the rapture, which is generally regarded as a peculiar doctrine of Russellism. But the Bible teaches that now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 When the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world, the only possible means of approach to God is severed. The fact of the matter is that the coming of Christ ushers in the day of judgment and closes forever the door to any further repentance. Those who do not accept the present gospel offer are lost forever. Alexander Rees, a premillennialist, but not a dispensationalist, ridicules the notion of such a prodigious tour of the world in 1,260 days, an army of half-converted Jews still in their sins. Preachers without life, he says, without forgiveness and without the Holy Spirit in the soul, will do in 1,260 days what the whole Christian church has been unable to do in 1,900 years evangelize the world and convert the overwhelming majority of the inhabitants of the world to God. This declaration of Schofield's works out at about a million converts a day and this at a time when the Holy Spirit is in heaven and the Antichrist is raging here below. A quote from the Approaching Advent of Christ, page 269. And Hamilton, an amillennialist, says, How could they be regenerated if there were no Holy Spirit present to give them the new birth? This whole theory is thoroughly unscriptural throughout, since it would by inference deny that man is dead in sins and thus contradict Ephesians 2 verse 1. A quote from the Basis of Millennial Faith, page 77. Identifying the Time of the Great Tribulation The New Testament passages bearing most fully and directly on the Great Tribulation are Matthew 24, verses 1 through 31, Mark 13, verses 1 through 37, and Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, and chapter 21, verses 5 through 36. However, a very remarkable prophecy spoken by Moses and found in Deuteronomy 28 throws much light on this subject. It set forth on the one hand the great blessings that would attend Israel as a nation if they remained true to God and kept his commandment, and on the other the fearful consequences that would follow if they broke the covenant. Said Moses, And it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Jehovah thy God to observe to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that Jehovah thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shalt be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy beasts, and the increase of thy cattle, and the young of thy flock. Jehovah will cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thee. They shall come out against thee one way, and shall flee before thee seven ways. Jehovah will establish thee for a holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of Jehovah thy God and walk in his ways. 
And all the peoples of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of Jehovah, and they shall be afraid of thee. And Jehovah will make thee the head, and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. Thou shalt not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Verses 1-14 through 14. Over against this promise of marvelous blessing if Israel remained true, there was set forth the utterly terrible consequences of disobedience. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of Jehovah thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground, the increase of thy cattle and the young of thy flock. Jehovah will cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and shalt flee seven ways before them. And thou shalt be tossed to and fro among all the kingdoms of the earth. Jehovah will bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. And they shall besiege thee in all thy gates, until thy high and fortified walls come down, wherein thou trustest. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, whom Jehovah thy God hath given thee, in the siege and in the distress wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. The man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eye shall be evil toward his brother, and toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the remnant of his children whom he hath remaining, so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he shall eat, because he hath nothing left him, in the siege and in the distress wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in all thy gates. The tender and delicate woman among you who would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness. Her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom, and toward her son, and toward her daughter, and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet, and toward her children whom she shall bear. For she shall eat them for want of all things secretly, in the siege and in the distress wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee. And Jehovah will scatter thee among all peoples, from the one end of the earth unto the other end of the earth. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, even wood and stone. And Jehovah will bring thee into Egypt again with ships, by the way whereof I said unto thee, Thou shalt see it no more again. And there ye shall sell yourselves unto your enemies for bondsmen and for bondswomen and no man shall buy you. Verses 15 through 68 These words were spoken nearly 15 centuries before the time of Christ. In Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27, there is found another remarkable prophecy to the same effect. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and even unto the end shall be war. Desolations are determined. And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And upon the wing of the abomination 
shall come one that maketh desolation, and even unto the full end, and that determined, shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. Now let us compare with these prophecies of Moses and Daniel the words of Christ spoken to his disciples concerning the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the great tribulation that he said would befall the people. In Matthew 24 we read, And Jesus went out from the temple and was going on his way. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. But he answered and said unto him, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Then shall they deliver you up into tribulation, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all the nations for my name's sake. And then shall many stumble, and shall deliver up one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall lead many astray. And because iniquity shall be multiplied, the love of the many shall wax cold. But he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When therefore ye see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let him that readeth understand, then let them that are in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let him that is on the housetop not go down to take out the things that are in his house, and let him that is in the field not return back to take his cloak. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath. For then shall be great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days had been shortened, no flesh would have been saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Verses 1, 2, and 9 through 22. The awful climax of suffering toward which the city and the nation were rapidly building was also reflected in the strong words of Jesus as he was being led out to be crucified, recorded in Luke chapter 23 verses 28 through 30. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the breast that never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. That Jesus was speaking of the siege of Jerusalem, which was then only a few years in the future, is made clear in the parallel passages, Matthew 24, verses 1 through 34, and Luke 21, verses 20 through 36 and that his words referred especially to that generation is placed beyond all doubt when in Matthew 24:34 and Luke 21:32 he said this generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished those who picture a future tribulation of awful proportions should remember that Christ himself said that the greatest tribulation of all time was to occur at the siege of Jerusalem that the great tribulation of which Christ spoke did not refer to an event at the end of the age is made clear by the fact that after saying that such suffering had not been known since the beginning of the world, he goes on to say, 
No, nor ever shall be. It would have been pointless to have added that comment if it was to occur at the end of the age, for then, of course, no time would have been left for such an occurrence. This is also borne out by the fact that Jesus told the Christians to pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath. Verse 20 They were to pray that no natural causes might hinder their flight from the scene of horror, and that it would not happen on the Sabbath, when, according to Jewish law, they could travel only a short distance. These provisions indicate a local, not a worldwide event. Nor can they apply to the second coming, for then true believers are to be taken directly to be with Christ. There will be no reason at all then for them to flee to the mountains. Nor do the words, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations, and then shall the end come, Matthew 24:14, mean that those events are to occur at the end of the age. This language is similar to that used to describe the events that occurred on the day of Pentecost, where we read, Now there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Acts chapter 2 verse 5 And then the nations represented are named Parthia, Media, Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Egypt, Rome, Arabia, etc. Not the entire world, but the world as known to the Jews of that day. Mark too uses similar language when he says that after the ascension of Christ, the disciples went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that followed. Chapter 16, verse 20 In writing to the Romans about the year 58 A.D., Paul said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. Chapter 1, verse 8. Unto all the nations. Chapter 16, verse 26. And in the letter to the Colossians, he used the most expensive language concerning the preaching of the gospel that had already occurred. A.D. 63. The gospel which ye heard, which was preached in all creation under heaven. Chapter 1, verse 23. Hence Christ referred not to a preaching of the gospel in our day or near the end of the age, but to a preaching that was to occur before the destruction of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. Likewise, the end referred to by Matthew, and then shall the end come, verse 14, refers not to the end of the world, but to the end of the Old Testament economy, with its temple and priesthood, its ritual and sacrifice, the final breakup of the Jewish nation and the dispersal of the people, which, as the events proved, was just at hand. It is hard for us at this distance to realize what a revolutionary change that was as the old order, which had been in existence for 15 centuries and which had set the Jews apart from all of the surrounding nations, came to its final climax and was abolished. In Old Testament times, the message of salvation was confined to the one little nation of Israel. But before the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., the distinction between Jew and Gentile had been abolished, and a new era had dawned in which the gospel was being preached to all nations without distinction of race or color. For the Jews who had grown up under the old order, it meant the end of a way of life as they had known it and the launching out into a new way.
in effect, a new world. There has been much conjecture and much misunderstanding regarding what Matthew meant by the abomination of desolation. Verses 15 and 16 read, When therefore ye shall see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let him that readeth understand, then let them that are in Judea flee unto the mountains. Some, as Blackstone, have thought that this meant an idol placed in the holy of holies of the temple during the reign of Antichrist. A quote in Jesus is Coming, page 187. That, of course, is only a conjecture, a private opinion entirely without scriptural support. An image in the Holy of Holies could not have been seen by the people, for only the high priest was allowed to enter that sacred place, and then only once each year. Jesus spoke of some public event that the people could see, something that the Christians could recognize as the appointed sign when they were to flee immediately to the mountains. The explanation of the sign is to be found, we believe, in the difference in wording between Matthew's account and that given by Luke. Luke says, And when ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that her desolation is at hand. Then let them that are in Judea flee into the mountains. Chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. A foreign pagan army on the sacred soil of Palestine would be an abomination and the desolating work of invading armies is well known. Hence this is a reference to the soon coming invasion of Palestine by the Romans. It is generally assumed on the part of Bible scholars that the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily for the Jews who were familiar with Old Testament prophecy and who therefore would recognize this expression as a reference to invading armies. But that the Gospel of Luke was written more particularly for Gentiles who were not acquainted with prophecy. Hence Luke says plainly, When ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies. The cup of iniquity of the Jewish nation was just about full. Matthew 23:32. Upon the generation then living would come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of Abel the righteous unto the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom ye slew between the sanctuary and the altar. Matthew 23.35 This prophecy is repeated in Matthew 24.34 where Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.